It's episode 102 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is Tom Greenwood. He's the managing director of the London-based agency Whole Grain Digital and the author of the new book, Sustainable Web Design. We're going to discuss how tiny changes in how we code can have a dramatic impact on our carbon footprint. Tom, thanks so much for being on the program. That's a pleasure. Uh, you know, it's really interesting to set a little context as we're recording this episode about the impact of our work on the climate. It is absolutely dumping down with snow in London, which is <laughs> pretty unusual. Uh, and whenever we have somewhat unusual weather, I'm like, oh, man, is this the new normal? You know, like over the summer, it was 40 degrees uh, Celsius in London. And now we're getting yeah. piles of snow. And like the the gaps between these unusual events seem to be getting a little smaller all the time. And I'm like, wow, all right. So here we go, right? Yeah, I know. I mean, last summer, in a, in a terrible kind of way, was probably the best summer that the UK's ever seen. And it was just sunny and hot the whole time through. It was just through. sunny yeah. and hot. It was like, who needs to go abroad? Um, but at the same time, that's really worrying because, you know, the UK is famous for its terrible weather. <laughs> so, um, and equally, I think our, I've, I've noticed where I live, the, the winters seem to be getting wetter and and then you get these kind of freak cold snaps that in a way we didn't used to. So things are definitely changing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's a tremendous amount of time and attention going on around how how every aspect of what we can, what we can do can be rethought, reevaluated, uh, optimized, eliminated, all of that kind of stuff. But look, let me I'll be super honest. When I when I saw uh, your, the title of your new book, uh, I thought to myself, like, really, you know, like jet planes <laughs> crossing the globe and diesel trucks bringing me Amazon prime every day. And like, I can change my CSS and images and actually make an impact. Uh, but then I saw, like, you know, you, you give this example in the book of a WordPress plugin developer who's, uh, whose work is installed on 2 million web pages and removed a 20K JavaScript library that was causing some server load and estimated that they reduced global carbon by 700 tons a year. And I'm like, oh, all right. So little changes at scale, which is kind of a mantra of the environmental movement anyway, like really yeah. make a difference in like the choices we make about our web and app designs. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of the nature of the web is that it is made up of trillions of tiny, tiny things. You know, there's around the world every day, people are on the internet constantly and each individual action, if you look at it individually, is kind of insignificant. But when you scale them up by the number of people who are actually interacting with those services, um, it, it becomes a really big impact. And you know, when you look at it in total, including kind of all of the all of the services behind the scenes, the internet carbon footprint is is actually equivalent to aviation. It's just that, which is which is shocking. You know, it's it's one of the most polluting industries in the world, and yet we hardly talk about it. But at the same time, like when you get on a flight, one flight for one person has like a really big measurable impact. So it's something you can kind of get your head around, and you can right. see it. You can see the jet engines and the trails coming out the back, and Whereas the internet, it's like, well, one, you know, visit to a web page or, you know, interaction with your mobile bank or whatever it is, is, is tiny. 
um, and you don't see the fumes coming out the back of your smartphone. <laughs> no, right, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so let's back up a little bit, like where your motivation came from. You, uh, I, I think, had sort of an epiphany a while back around like, well, you know, I'm certainly like the environment is important to me. And so I'm not going to use, I'm not going to become a physical product designer because that just fills up like the stuff I make fills up landfill. I'll be digital and that'll all be fine. Right. Like I I remember feeling a bit smug about that, like over the past, you know, decade of my career thinking like, well, at least I'm not, you know, making stuff out of plastic, but right. That's exactly it. So I studied product design at university in the days when product design meant you know, physical products made in factories. And and I wrote my thesis on sustainable design. And I was really excited about kind of going into that world and trying to change it. And if I'm being honest, I very quickly got sort of disillusioned with it. Um, and a few years after graduation, I thought, you know what? I'm going to go into this kind of exciting new world of of digital which doesn't have all of that kind of baggage of physical products. And and the idea that actually we could create things that are useful, that you don't need to be made in a factory, the materials don't need to be dug mm. out of the ground, is super exciting. And and it still is. And I think, you know, there's there's we shouldn't overlook the fact that actually digital services have huge potential to kind of change the world in ways that reduce the requirement for physical travel and physical products and all of those things. Um, but yeah, but absolutely, there was this sort of naive, um, this naive smugness that like, oh, we don't need to worry about it at all anymore. It's like we have no impact. Um, we can just do whatever we want. And then a few years ago, just through conversation, it sort of came up that, well, hang on a minute. Like, we've never actually really looked into that. We've just made a blind assumption that digital has no environmental impact. And and once once we started looking into it, we realized that we were gravely mistaken. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, my from my own background, I started in journalism and um and I worked at a newspaper and I learned a lot about design at the newspaper. But yeah, there was like there was a there was a time when the trucks would come and unload giant rolls of dead trees yeah. and we would smear them with ink and send them back on trucks, you know? And uh and I remember like the web. Like no none of the trees. That you know, that's wonderful. Like we can yeah, save yeah. all of that. Um but uh, but we are having sort of a growing understanding. Like, h- help me through some of the the data here. Uh, when you 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 said that like data center electricity usage m- is from a carbon perspective matches what the airline industry does. But like, how does that total up overall? You mean in terms of the actual, like, where does it come from? What, what I'm really getting at is like. Is this a huge impact globally on having all these data centers running, or is it like a fraction of a fraction? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get my head around like these massive data centers all over the world, and what impact are they really having? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the the sort of most common estimate says it's somewhere around two percent of global carbon emissions, which two percent sounds like a small amount, but actually, like the aviation industry is about two percent, and it and and unlike a lot of other industries, the impact of of the internet is growing quite rapidly just because of like the increasing number of people that are connected and the increasing reliance on the internet in our daily lives means that our right. data consumption is growing really, really rapidly um, and growing a lot faster than we're actually kind of decarbonizing the infrastructure of the web. So, so it's sort of 2% and growing. It's a wealthy country. 
in terms of carbon emissions. So like that, that I think is quite some helpful context that if you think about a country like the UK or Germany or something like that, the mm. internet has a similar carbon footprint. Mm. And yeah. if you, and those are some of the most polluting countries in the world. Got it. Got it. And so thinking about that context, then it sort of frames the question of like, like where do we start on that problem? Right. Uh, I think your position, uh, it seems to me, is that we're starting from the ver one very extreme end of it, which is like, what are we creating that actually triggers the series of events that causes electricity to flow through all of this? Right. There are yeah. other people, I think, that are working really hard on the on the whole other end, which is like, yeah. can we make servers do the same thing for a lot less energy? Right. Absolutely. So that you can. But there is this like the need to fill the, the, like the vacuum, so to speak, right? Like the more, uh, the more efficient we get, the more we're like, Hey, that's great. Like, look at all the headroom we have on the server. Let's build some more stuff. Right. We always use it up. It's like traffic flow in a city. Like, yeah. well, we'll just build another highway and it just makes people use it more and traffic never, ever gets better. So it's kind yeah. of the same with all of this. We have people that are making, and I've seen some of the numbers for, uh, server efficiency and storage efficiency and network switches and how how they get better and better and better every time we refab the chips, you know, like everything gets more efficient and then we just use it all up. So you're on the other end of that saying like, let's not do that. Like, let's not use <laughs> it up. Like, let's be a way more efficient in what we produce so that when it's consumed, right, like we can get those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like just because just because we've got more capacity doesn't mean that we should be more wasteful with it. And I think that's just kind of the perpetual problem of human nature, as exactly as you said with highways, you know, it's like, oh, now that we've got a new highway, I can actually, I can buy a house like 30 miles further out of the city and I can commute even further because right. now, now there's a fast road, but then everybody else does that and, and we're back to square one. And I think the problem with with the web, and, and I think software in general, is we've always had this issue of feature creep. The hardware gets faster and the internet connections get faster. And so as software developers, we're always like, oh, we can get more features in here. You never really feel like, like the internet does feel like it's got faster, but not, it's not as fast as it should be. Right. Considering like the actual infrastructure behind the scenes, how much that's improved over the last 10 years. Like you should be in a position where you never have to wait for something to load. Um, and yet we still do. <laughs> true, true. It seems like you took a step towards trying to get your head around all of this with a, with a sort of manifesto a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's right? right. Like a sustainable web manifesto. And maybe that is a great entry point into some of the bigger picture stuff that you could, uh, you could tell us about um, with regards to how we, could, how we change our behaviors. Yeah, so so we got together with a few other people in the industry who were who were thinking about sort of the sustainability issues and 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 tried to write the manifesto to really just highlight some of the key concepts that that we should be keeping in mind when working on digital projects that would help us move towards creating you know web services that are inherently more sustainable. And I think the first two points of the manifesto clean and efficient are kind of the, the two the two headliners really clean meaning like let's power everything as far as we physically can with renewable energy um and make a conscious choice to find providers that have that commitment right um and efficient is exactly what we were just talking about which is like let's stop wasting computer resources and bandwidth let's let's see how we can strip out the waste that's digital waste 
and deliver the same kind of end result to the user um, with the minimum amount of data, the minimum amount of processing, and be and you know pay attention to detail because I think mm. a lot of the time the reason things are inefficient it's not just because you can fit in more kind of exciting features it's also just because it's it's easy to be lazy and just kind of pile in copy and paste some stuff that you did before or that some library that you found when googling for the answer and just bundle it in because it's quick and easy um, and you can get away with it because the internet keeps getting faster so let's start with that first one of clean. This is literally like choosing a hosting provider that has that is connected to infrastructure that prioritizes clean energy. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, the energy of the internet happen, is basically consumed in three main places. The data centers where everything's stored and processed, the telecoms networks, which send the data around the world, and then obviously, like in our homes and offices, all of the networking gear and the our laptops and our phones and so on. But most of that, as people who are building, you know, web services, most of that we don't really have any control over where the energy comes from. Sure. But the data centers is something where we actually often have a, an active choice in who, like where do we where do we host these services? And we can make that choice based on location and technology, but also based on whether they have a commitment to using renewable energy to power those data centers. Interesting. Now, for the like the really big ones, right, where it, it's a very safe choice to build your application on Amazon Web Services, yeah. or to to put all your content onto Fastly or um, Akamai or you know some other CDN like that, you're, you're not going to get fired for choosing those. You know what I mean? Like those are very <laughs> safe. Like that's where people put stuff. Uh, yeah. And we're now we're making a proposal to our client or to our CTO that we want to use something that they may not have heard about. Like that's a that's a difficult conversation. So I guess in two parts. Like first of all, how well does Amazon do they talk about that about carbon footprint and their data centers or Fastly or any of these other sort of big infrastructure, uh, Cloudflare, you know that those kind of companies is that on the radar? It's a real mixed bag. I think until quite recently there was almost you know, radio silence for most of them. Um, Amazon has got a bad rap from Greenpeace like in the past when Greenpeace has done a report called Click Clean and Amazon has sort of tended to come out really bad in terms of not just not making a commitment to using renewable energy, but actively having like data centers with direct power feeds from coal power stations and mm you know, and, and and not really being transparent about their own plans. And and they have they have taken some big steps forward. They have got some sort of renewable power agreements for some of the data centers now. They're building some renewable infrastructure in terms of like wind farms and solar farms and and they've got a you know, they've they've announced an what sounds like an ambitious plan for decarbonization. Although I think there's still criticism of them that it's not very transparent. Mm. It could be all great, um, or it could be marketing fluff, and you know it's hard. It's hard to tell at this stage. Time right. will tell. Google's been, you know, quite at the, I'd say, the other end of the spectrum in, you know, making some quite bold commitments to to renewable energy in its data centers, and they're not very transparent about like how much energy they're using and things like that. But they're a bit more transparent about the challenges of actually powering these services by renewables. And so, you know, they've got to the point now where they say that they've got like 
contracts for renewable energy for 100% of the energy they use. But they've also said, well, actually, yeah, but it's not necessarily like real time. Like in an, in a year, they might they might purchase the same amount of renewable energy as the total amount of energy used by their data centers. But but the actual electrons flowing into their data centers <laughs> at any point in time right. could be coming from anywhere, and they may often not be coming from renewable sources on this, you know, because it might not be available on the same grid. And but they've actually you know talked about that challenge publicly, and you know they've got some experiments going on around how they can actually try to move towards like 100% real-time renewable energy mm-hmm. over the next, you know, five to 10 years, which I think is really exciting to see to see that sort of um, conversation happening. Most of the other big providers, some of them have made some statements, but not very much. Cloudflare has made an announcement of their purchasing. Um, they're the only CDN provider that, that is, I'm aware of has made a, an announcement on the sustainability front, and they've said that they're purchasing renewable energy credits for 100% of the energy they use around the world, which is which is a great step forward. The The devil's always in the detail here, because right. renewable energy credits, they're, <laughs> they're not the same as actual electricity. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're, they're basically like bits of paper you can buy from renewable energy providers um, to basically take the credit for the fact that they generated a certain amount of renewable energy. So you could buy those credits from like wind farms and solar farms that aren't even in the same country as your data center. Sure. You're you're saying you're kind of testifying that you paid for the production of, yeah, a, exactly. of a bunch of electrons, but the ones that went into your pipes, like you know, those could come right out of the coal plant. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's a step in the right direction. Sure. But I think it's it's early days. Well, I would imagine that uh, there's increasing pressure too because uh, I've been following a little bit, uh, you know, carbon accounting. And how yeah. uh, many companies are stating as a value, we're going to do full supply chain carbon accounting, right? So that so that can, we can pass on to consumers the information about like the totality of our carbon emissions for all the decisions that we've made in the production of whatever we're making. Yeah. And when you do that, then you have to go back to your suppliers and say, okay, let me know. What is it? And yeah. if you know, you're an entirely digital product company and you're like going back to... Amazon and they just can't tell you, then you you know then you can't do the not only the account the accountability but the like certification that you are a carbon neutral company. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where we're at now is that companies are starting to wake up to the fact that there's a there's a carbon impact to digital services and they want to include that in their total accounting for everything they do as a business. And then they're they're finding that actually the the data is really hard to come by and yeah. the the providers don't really in most cases don't really want to talk about it much so i think you know increasingly companies are going to have to have that data which means that the data center providers are going to have to start opening up a bit yeah yeah for sure all right let's take a little break uh we'll be right back this episode of presentable is brought to you by pingdom today's internet users expect a fast web experience no matter how good your content is or how great your marketing is they'll most likely bounce off your website if it's loading too slow we all know that but with real user monitoring from pingdom you can discover your website performance issues and how they affect your visitors experience so you can take action before you have any impact to your business How your visitors experience your website differs depending on the browser they're using, what device it's on, what platform they use. So 
you want to identify how visitors are experiencing your website so you can make informed optimizations and deliver a great performance uh, for the customers who matter most to you. Real user monitoring, it's, uh, it's an event-based solution. It's built for scalability, meaning you can monitor millions of page views without any compromise to the fidelity of your data, even going back into history. Uh, and it doesn't cost a ton to do so. Uh, get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Just go to pingdom.com slash relay fm and go there right now you get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required and then if you do sign up which you should use the code presentable at checkout and you'll get an awesome 30 percent off your first invoice so thanks to pingdom from solar winds for their support of this show and for their support of all of relay fm all right, so we talked a little bit then about the data centers uh, and making decisions there and kind of trace back like where's the energy coming from and the stuff that, that powers the stuff that we make. But let's talk a little bit about the decisions that we can make uh, that we as designers have direct control over. Uh, let's, let's talk about like, where do you even start? I'm making a website, I'm a, you know, a product uh, that is going to be delivered that way. What do I start thinking about? You know, take, take, <laughs> let's start at the beginning. Where, where do we start? Yeah, such a good question. And, um, you know, in some ways, you start where you would normally start and, and you can move from there. But I'd say in general, like planning, like what planning the actual user experience is like is really the key. Mm. You can you can go straight into looking at like technical efficiencies in development. But actually, when it comes down to it, like any web service, whether it's a website or whether it's some sort of application, it's trying to deliver. It's trying to deliver something to the user. It's trying to help them achieve something. And actually planning that out with a mindset of efficiency is really the key place to start. How can we get them what they need with them having to spend the least amount of time, the least amount of clicks, load the least amount of data um, from a user experience point of view? Right. And I think once you've sort of mapped that out as a, as a structure, then you can start thinking about the actual kind of user interface details and the technical details of how how you present that. So ideally, they would be aligned. Our sort of, the carbon footprint of our user experience and the efficacy, right, of the of the user experience for the user should, yeah. like, we sh- should be able to do both. Uh, and in fact, like, uh, inefficiencies in both of those are, are uh, you know, sort of equally bad, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, that there's not really, there's not really a downside to pursuing efficiency in web design, because most of the efficiencies actually benefit users, whether it's through improved user experience, because you're actually helping streamline those user journeys and, you know, you're not wasting their time, you're not loading things that they don't want to see, um, you're not making them click through multiple pages to get to something, you, they can go straight to where they're, you know, trying to go. So it benefits the user, like it's only, it's only a good thing from a, from a user point of view, so it's completely aligned. One way to put it might be that respect for a user's time and attention uh, is also respect for the environment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, so, so an overall simplicity, and you, you, you know, you made some examples of like fewer interstitial pages between like navigation and content. Like, yeah. I don't need to click on five pages to get to my destination. If I, if you could put everything in one menu and I could just get there, and now we have taken out how many megabytes of data transfer from that experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and just silly things like, I mean, I call them yo-yo journeys where 
you can be on a website and you find yourself like constantly going into a page to refer to something and coming back and then going back in. And, and a good example is like a an e-commerce site with a shopping cart where you're doing your shopping and you can't remember what's in your cart. So you keep going to the cart to have a look at what you've already put there and then go back to look at what else you want to put in your cart. But you're constantly yo-yoing back and forth. Whereas actually, if you can make the cart like part of the main, you know, kind of global navigation menu that you can just refer to it on any page anytime easily it just gives you a little summary of what's in your cart you can you can stop the shuttling back and forth which is which is you know it's good for the user but you're also saving all that data right right and then there is the contents of the pages themselves and so much of the weight of pages tends to come from images and yeah and so there's a lot of principles we could put in place there too can we yeah, exactly. And and again, like the first thing that I always think is like to challenge the use of the image at all. Um, a lot of images are, you know, they're there to create a kind of a, an emotional connection and a general kind of brand experience. But like before going to the sort of the technical end of of the problem and say, well, how can we optimize images and make the files smaller? Like I always like to ask the questions, like you know. What does this image achieve? Like, how does this deliver value to the person looking at it? And and is it even needed? If yes, okay, now we can talk about how we can deliver that in the most efficient way. But sometimes you might find that actually, no, you, you just, there was a space, so you filled it, you know? Right. Or, or there was just an assumption made that we have to have a hero image at the top of the website that fills the whole screen. Um, and no one actually stopped to ask why why it's there, what is it doing? And I think asking those questions up front is really powerful. And then for the remaining ish, uh, remaining images, there are plenty of optimizations, making sure you're sending the right image to the right device, you know, for you know uh, progressive enhancement and all that kind of stuff. Um, not sending you know scaled down retina images, to, you know, and, and things like that. Uh, so there is, it, it is, you know, it's it's very aligned with a lot of the like the best user experience is the one that people wait around to load for. Right, like you're not gonna. You could do all the work in the world on usability and user engagement, and if it takes too long to load, nobody's gonna see it. It's you know yeah. they're just gonna hit the back button. You have such a tiny time frame to get that stuff onto the page. But this is very aligned with the stuff that you're talking about, which is like let's just strip as much out as we can, like optimize, 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 like get the uh, you know send your images through the optimizers that you know strip out all the other stuff so that we have got it to the absolute minimum to still produce the same user experience. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, once you when you really pursue optimizations aggressively, what you end up is basically a user experience that might look the same, it's just as visually appealing as if you hadn't made that effort. But but they don't have the user doesn't have to wait around for it to arrive. Like it's super fast and it just you know, appears on their screen yeah. almost instantaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really thinking through caching as well. I remember when we were first starting to build Typekit, uh, yeah. with the idea of uh, a subscription model for these assets that could be stored on a CDN, right? And starting to think through and actually really working through our margin for the business. Like, what are we going to charge? Uh, and how are we going to make this profitable? And what are our costs? And our costs were yeah. all CDN. 
all of it. Yeah, right? yeah. Like we did a little bit of uh, of server processing of fonts and things like that. And then everything was just, cause, you know, we have websites for our customers that were getting hundreds of millions of views uh, in a month. So, you know, we were s- serving a ton of assets. And if we could serve that same copy of Museo Slab or <laughs> Proxima Nova, <laughs> if we could take that one font and cash it across all of our customers' customers, right? Um, inspired by, uh, I can't remember what this was called, but Google had a service where they had a set of the most used client-side JavaScript libraries like jQuery and and stuff like that on servers. And they're just like linked to ours because it's already in everybody everybody's yeah. caches already, right? And I know there's a lot of, uh, I think Font Awesome now today, right? Uh, is a is a service like that where like, here's all, uh, all the icons you could possibly need saved inside of a font that most people probably already have in their cache and will refer to the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, as a way of of sort of um, getting past going back and forth to the server all the time, especially if that server isn't even using a CDN and I'm like, I'm reaching out from London to Seattle to pull images across, like, it's a big deal. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's all about looking at those ways that you can actually just minimize the need for the data to be sent at all. Like, it's not just about shrinking the files down it's also about you know have they already got this then great and and i think you know system fonts they're not sexy but they're a good example of that you know that and i think hotels.com is a really you know successful website that they only use system fonts because they know everyone's already got them and they don't have to be loaded so it's super efficient and and avoids the the need for kind of slow load times, which I guess, you know, hotels, a lot of people are booking on mobiles. You don't know how good their connection is. And and so you want to streamline things as much as you can. I do, though, almost have a, an imperative to make a plug for custom fonts. I mean, <laughs> they, they're beautiful and it's tremendous work. <laughs> but yes. I, I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> <laughs> but caching, caching, caching. We can like at least yeah. start to shave off more and more megabytes of download that way. That's a, that's great. How do we know? How do we know how much we're spending? Like there's some tools out there that we can use, right? Um, and I, I think it's important to point out it's not just what we're delivering, but it's the impact on the end user's device as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, like I could send a very small amount of data that frankly like mines Bitcoin in the background uh, <laughs> you know, of all of my users' machines and have a huge carbon in- footprint with almost no bandwidth. Yep, absolutely right. Um, and there's a, there's a nice tool in, in the Safari browser in the developer tools um, which is like an energy impact gauge, which measures CPU energy when you load when you load a web page. Oh, I've never seen that. That's really interesting. Yeah, huh. it's. I think it's the only browser that has that tool, but it's really useful because exactly as you say, like you you build a page and you think, oh, we've got the files as small as possible. It's super efficient, but actually, maybe maybe we've like bundled in stuff there, which is. It's just moving the problem from like the data center to the end user's device. And actually we're making them do a lot of the processing. Um, so it's good to it's good to be able to get a get a sense of that. So the Safari developer tools is one place to check, at least on energy consumption. And then uh there's a the website carbon calculator that we could also use that sort of tries to get at uh like file size and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So websitecarbon.com is the calculator that we built um about 
I think about three years ago when we kind of continue to iterate that and update it with with new data over time. But that that gives you like a, a carbon score for a web page. And that that's primarily based on like the amount of data that you're transferring, but it also factors in it also factors in the like the carbon intensity of the data center energy. So it adjusts it based on whether it can detect a data center IP address that's registered as having a green energy contract. Ah, cool. Yeah. Uh, that's great. That's great. And then we should feel no moral qualms whatsoever about installing content blockers and ad blockers and, and stuff like that, right? <laughs> like as, uh, on our personal devices to reduce our carbon footprint to browsing the web. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know there's a, like a whole big debate around, you know, the, the business model of publishing and, yeah. you know, and, and how how content gets funded and so on. But in terms of like energy impact, it's and to some extent privacy, I think ad blockers definitely, definitely are a win. I have a tiny little server uh, in the closet by the modem uh, and router that runs a ad blocker on a like on a Raspberry Pi and does it for the whole network. Uh, oh, just nice. for my kids and you know everything that they're browsing and just blocks all of that. But it has stats, right? Like I have a little dashboard that goes with it, and it's really remarkable. Like how much when it's on versus when it's off, how much bandwidth is being used, uh, let alone you know, the impact on the batteries of their devices, uh, yeah, uh for, yeah. for these things running constantly in the background. But, the the number of block queries is astounding. It really is. Nice. I, um, I started using the brave browser a few years back because sure. I commute a lot on the train, at least pre pandemic, I was commuting a lot on the train and browsing the web. And there were various websites that I visited regularly that I just, I'd often just sit there and I just couldn't load them because, because of the ads and I switched to brave because it was the only way I could actually like get these pages to load on the patchy connection that, that I was getting on the train. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of, you know, consumer pressure, right? Like there's yeah. the, uh, carbon accounting, but also just like, Hey, you're using up all my data. And I think, yeah. I think that's a conversation that's happening pretty actively in the industry. Yeah. It seems to be happening literally between Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook at this moment. <laughs> like they're just like sniping at each other in a way that's really remarkable. Uh, so that's pretty cool. All right, let's take another break. We'll be right back uh, and talk about this some more. All right, let's uh, take another break and hear from our friends at Microsoft who have a new podcast uh, called The Inside Track, all about the automotive industry, how they're using technology. Uh, it's really cool. It's always fun to find a new podcast to listen to. Uh, this one is hosted by resident car guy, Kerry Lovell. Uh, the interviews that he does uh, are with industry experts, insiders, analysts, uh, and they, you know, they talk about long-term trends, evolving expectations that people have when buying cars and the effects of technology uh, and how it's advancing and what that's doing to the automotive industry. Um, the show covers a bunch of segments like, uh, like how artificial intelligence is being used in automotive manufacturing, uh, what's going on with connected vehicles, uh, how they're using cloud simulations and, um, and intelligent infrastructure. They've got guests from uh, Audi and Toyota, Anata, 
Anisys, SBD Automotive, loads of stuff to listen to. It's really, really interesting. I was listening to an episode recently that had a fascinating discussion about the design of self-driving cars. Uh, In particular, it looked at how AI and massive clusters of cloud servers are being used to simulate what these vehicles might experience and measure how they might react. Uh, All of this is being done to improve autonomous cars way faster than they could by driving them around in the real world. Uh, So really compelling stuff. Go have a listen. Uh, You just search for the inside track wherever you get your podcast or click the link uh, that I'll put in the show notes. Uh, So thanks to the inside track and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, All right. Well, let's talk now a little bit about making this change in the organizations that we work for, right? You're in an agency, so you are in a bit of a position to be able to sell these kinds of services, to say to companies, look, if if carbon is important to you, if your carbon footprint is important, uh, we have a way of helping you reduce that with the digital products, right? And, And that's a great piece of leverage that you have as an agency. Uh, but there are plenty of designers that are just in some company uh, that may not uh, be as proactive with those values. And, yeah, and getting that, uh, you know, starting that conversation. This is really interesting, too, because we have a lot of conversations on this podcast with, with people that have different advocacy for the inputs into our product decisions, right? Whether it be accessibility or uh, diversity and inclusion uh, or any range of other sort of intersectional ideas about like what should, like the ethical uh, implications of the products that we're making, the privacy implications. Like, so there's a lot of, I think, um, stepping back that is required to say like, all right, what are all of the values that need to be represented in the product that we're making? And one of the things that we have found on this podcast is that it is almost always the designers that, <laughs> that, that tend to start with that position. Right. And that's not to yeah. say that other disciplines don't have the same set of values, but it feels like the burden lands on the shoulder of the designers of like, of actually putting into practice those things. So, so in this case, with the carbon footprint of the product that we're making in a digital product, um, that's a conversation that has to sort of, you know, be initiated from somewhere. It is. Yeah. And I think, you know, the fact that awareness of sustainability within the digital industry in general is so low means that it's the biggest problem is really that it's just it's just a conversation that's not happening at all. And before you even get to talking about like, what are the actual actions we can take is just getting it on, getting it on the agenda as something that we should be including as a factor in our projects. And I think very similar to like diversity and inclusion and accessibility and other issues like that, it often takes somebody to kind of put their head above the parapet and, and, and be that champion of just through personal passion of saying, hey, I think we should, I think we should talk about sustainability as well as these other things and 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 try to just get it into the conversation so that it's something that people are aware of. Once they're aware of it, I think we found that actually, you know, developers, designers, digital marketers, once they actually kind of realize that this is this is a thing and it's an issue that we should be talking about they often get quite excited about it and say, okay, like what are the actions we can take? And then from there, it's actually, it's relatively easy because you've then got the buy-in. It's getting the buy-in in the first place that I think is is really, really hard for something that people have often never heard about at all. 
Yeah, yeah. I could see it aligning with, uh, uh, and maybe this is a, just a gross oversimplification, but like there's, there is a, a sort of geeky, nerdy satisfaction with optimization, right? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. the thing we had before now does this so much faster and so much smaller and so much more efficiently and like making the system tighter and tighter. You know, yeah. um, uh, I've certainly felt that in the work that we've done, you know, like there, there is the thrill of innovation and then the like satisfaction of optimization and those yeah. kind of go hand in hand. And so, um, so ha like bringing that conversation up through a technical hierarchy in an organization, right. Cause you really like data center choices are going to be made by the CTO. Right. And, yeah. you know, and me as a designer trying to get up that way, but, but there's a path through that. And I think it's inherent in that kind of almost engineering hubris, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and just the kind of the, the obsession of, of just never being satisfied that things are perfect and wanting to improve them and actually showing them that, Hey, there's this, there's yet another like motivational factor to pursue that optimization because, you know, you've got, You've got you've got web performance. You've got you know saving, hosting costs and things like that yeah. as kind of business drivers for optimizations. But actually, there's a lot of developers who, if they realize that these optimizations will also help reduce environmental impact, will then on on more of a kind of personal emotional level get invested in in these rather than them just being kind of dry business requirements. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So yeah, uh, I like that starting from a, uh, almost a, like a personal passion, um, yeah. and then taking it up through the rest of the organization. Um, it's interesting cause there are so many vectors of passion, frankly, from so many yeah. people. Um, but that is honestly, I think the way to move forward with product development in our contemporary world is to take into account all of the impacts that a product will have in every dimension. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And I think often, you know, you, we find that nobody's equally passionate about every, everything right but if within an organization you've got people who are you know championing specific things and they're all coming together and and finding common ground amongst those issues you know like privacy and accessibility and security and sustainability that's when you get really great results because actually like you know you're you're tapping into the energy of of in people's individual passions and finding technical solutions that actually align with all of them. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, that's wonderful. And I really appreciate the conversation. Let's see here. The book is called sustainable web design. It's from our friends right. at, at a book apart. I think you, you were mentioning it is literally like launching as we speak or <laughs> this afternoon yeah. or something. So as we're talking, as far as I'm aware, it's, um, they're changing the web page on the book apart website to make it, uh, officially available today yeah. well, congratulations that's uh that's wonderful it's hard to do a book tour uh you know in a pandemic but um but i know it, it must be very satisfying to actually get the work out in in front of people so congratulations on that thank you very much yeah I've, i will put a link to that uh in the show notes for this as well as all of the other resources that we described today where can people learn more about this as well yeah sure so if if you if you go to our website at wholegraindigital.com, we've got we write about this topic a lot on our blog, so it's always worth checking out our blog. Websitecarbon.com, which I mentioned, is the carbon calculator that yeah. we've built, and um, and in the footer of that website, there's a sign up form for our Curiously Green newsletter, which goes out monthly and 
has interesting updates of things that people are doing in the industry around sustainability. And um, and also last week, together with Mighty Bytes, which is a US agency, we launched a new version of a website, sustainablewebdesign.org, which is like a online resource full of strategies that you can apply to projects that focus on kind of combining both the people and planet um, aspects of um, sustainable design. Fantastic. I will put links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for being on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.